Hiya, Georgie. Welcome to my world. The blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. Come with me if you want to live. Hello and welcome to Direct to Nowhere, the section of the Road to Nowhere podcast in which I myself invite a guest on to discuss a director of their choosing and three other movies. Today I'm delighted to be joined by the host of the Old Fun Facts podcast, journalist and the man who runs the Old Fun Facts Twitter account, Adam Miller. Hi Adam, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me on. No, no worries, thanks for joining us. Um, so just to kick off, if you could just give a kind of brief background to yourself, the, the, I know your podcast is going about 10, not the podcast, sorry, the Twitter's been going about 10 years now, isn't it? Um, so yeah. yeah, just a, a, a kind of background on yourself for everybody listening. Uh, yeah, I mean, as you said, we just passed 10 years since mm-hmm. I started Old Firm Facts, and I mean, the first couple of years wasn't really a, wasn't really what it is now, but yeah, it was just a, an account I set up to make jokes about Scottish football, mm-hmm. and then one thing after another happened and eventually I got a career in journalism out of it and spent a few years now writing columns on football and non-football things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done sort of various radio things. I did a, a, I've done a few things for the BBC in the last year on TV. Yeah. And the probably the main focus for me at the moment is the podcast, the Old Fun Facts podcast, which mm-hmm. I've done 35 episodes of since it started kind of roughly a year ago yeah and it's excellent yeah you get some great guests on it i think the, I've, I've spoke to you about it before kind of um my favorite episode's the tam cowan one and that sounded yeah. like it was a bit of a <laughs> bit of try to keep him in line can be a bit more <laughs> difficult well t- tam is uh, tam is brilliant like there's some you know the thing that i try to do on it is you'll sometimes have guests on like say tam or stuart Mm-hmm. or other kind of broadcast professionals, you know, like Emma Dodds and people like that. And you know that if you give them, a, you know, Kelly Cates as well, you know that you know that if you tee them up, they, they're professionals and they can happily talk forever. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, I also try to get people on the show who I know from speaking on Twitter or seeing their writing are articulate people, but they might not have that much experience at speaking on a mic. And so it's... You, you maybe they take slightly longer to kind of warm up and hopefully they get into it as the show goes on. But with someone like Tam, you just need to give him kind of half a line, half a question, <laughs> and he's got so many anecdotes. And so same same with Stuart Cosgrove as well as, you know, the constraints of it. I don't want to start putting a three-hour podcast out, you know, mm-hmm. but you, you know that when you've got these people with you, you could happily listen to them for hours. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he has... Um... The tale of Jose Catongo was just <laughs> <laughs> cracked me up. It was a cracker. I'm not going to that on here because no, no, it no. gets a bit blue. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, that's fine. Uh, I, yeah, as I said, it's a, a, a cracking podcast. And um, I just recently finished your Scottish Cup facts on BBC as well, which was an excellent series. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was that that was a lot of fun to do as well, and just just a kind of novelty for me to be doing mm-hmm. TV things. We did a me and the same producer. We did five kind of wee short three minute videos 
during the Euros yeah. and the Scottish Cup facts thing came out of that. So that's three 10-minute episodes in the history of the Scottish Cup and we got to go through the, the archives of the Scottish Cup, which was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it was the second episode. It was probably, I think, my favourite. That was about the kind of Cup Shocks more side of it, wasn't it? Right, yeah. Uh, episode two. Um, and... I mean, me being a Celtic fan, I, I've got to ask, why Why do you hate my club? Why do you play most of that Clyde game? <laughs> me being from Cumberland and being a Celtic fan, the, the town was absolutely bouncing on about then. All, all I'll say is, if you, <laughs> this was the BBC, so balance is everything, right? Oh, yeah, of course. If you, if you sat and dissected, and no doubt there will be at least one Celtic fan who's done this, if you sat and dissected... The, the content of the three episodes back to back, you probably find that it's exactly like three minutes and 17 seconds of Celtic, three minutes and 17 seconds of Rangers. Yeah. <laughs> there will be, now you've said that, there'll be somebody sitting with a fucking stopwatch going <laughs> through every part and time someone shows up. But yeah, it was excellent. And I said, I can remember that day. I'm sure I was in Cumberland when it was happening, but uh, yeah. Clyde was my first football game ever. So I yeah. uh, just been from the area. Um, five minutes from it so it was good for them at the time but aye no, no so great for Roy Keane or do do we do we yeah aye. good thing aye oh, good <laughs> fucking night terrors with um, <laughs> so before we go on to your director before we can introduce the director just a couple of general questions for you is there a kind of a moment from movies as you would say, is one of your favourites, or is something that you maybe always go back to, like a rewatch or something, or that just brings up a great memory for you? It was, it was a really good question. That so, I was thinking about. Oh, I'm turning Charlie Nicholas. I was, I was no. thinking, <laughs> I was thinking about this for a bit, um, and there were like obvious things that jumped out at me, like, uh, you know, the, the the big long tracking shot and Goodfellas and stuff like that, and. Mm. Um, you know, big blockbustery moments like in Jurassic Park, Terminator Two, and stuff like that. Um, and the, yeah. I nearly went with like the the scene with Kristen Wiig on the plane and bridesmaids. But the one, the one that I ended up going for, it's not. It's just a small, subtle scene. But for some reason, you know, like you see, you see certain moments in films, and no matter how many times you've seen them, it still like sets you off. Mm-hmm. I was see in Knocked Up. I'll explain why in Knocked yeah. Up the scene where Seth Rogen's talking to his dad, who's played by Harold Ramis from yeah. uh, Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. For some reason, that just, every time it really, really gets me, that scene is like, uh, Seth Rogen, I think, <laughs> I think in a weird way, like Seth Rogen reminds me of myself at the age that he was doing, that he was in that film, yeah. minus obviously the accidental pregnancy. <laughs> um, but the, that you but, know of anyway. Well, yeah, yeah that's, that's true. <laughs> Shit, I better check. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, there was something about that reminded me, like, obviously, I'm a Jewish guy who likes to make daft jokes, which mm-hmm. you could probably apply to Seth Rogen as well. And I think when I was, when I was the age that Seth Rogen is in that film, kind of like early 20s, I, at that point in my life, I think I wasn't really achieving much in particular, and okay. I always kind of had a sense that I kind of, not that I was like letting my dad down, but like he's always been really supportive. But I was, I was a wee bit kind of like lethargic and found it hard to motivate myself at the time. And in that scene, like Seth Rogen saying to him, uh, you know, that he feels like a disappointment, mm-hmm. and his dad reassuring him, so he's like, his dad's just like completely understanding, funny, and wise. 
Jewish dad who looks like when I when I was a kid and I had get dragged along to the synagogue, he looks like half the middle aged men that you'd see in that place. <laughs> right. So I think that's kind of why in my head it, it's kind of I can relate to if it's something mm-hmm. like um like Seth Rogan asks like do I not like do you not think you just wish you hadn't had me and had all this trouble? And he's like he just says something like absolutely not. I love you totally and completely. You're the best thing that ever happened to me. And mm-hmm. it's when he says that I'm like Oh shit! It feels like it's just triggered something inside of yeah. me, you know. Um, but yeah, it's it's funny and it's smart and it's well written and well played and it's just like two minutes in this massively long comedy. But for some mm. reason, every time I see it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that that was the one that came to mind for some reason. Mm. It's a great movie, and yeah, it's long actually, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. close to it's, it must, it's not far off two and a half hours, I think, if you get the director's cut, which <laughs> yeah. Adam McKee, uh, you know. Judd Apatow, he's mm-hmm. that, isn't he? Um, yeah. He he he's got a habit of doing that. Quite a few of his okay. films, um, but yeah, well, that 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 was that was part of like we'll obviously come to the films that I chose, but like mm-hmm. a couple of comedies in there, different types of comedy. But one the things that I liked about them is they're short and to, 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 like there's no fat in them, there's no filler. They're like 80, 90 minutes. There's nothing yeah. in there that doesn't need to be there. Whereas like I really like Knocked Up. But if you were sitting being really brutal watching it, you'd go like, could probably lose five minutes here and five minutes there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. a kind of common occurrence, I think, at the minute. Um yeah. the, the bigger uh, especially with the big tent pole movies, like I've been to see the Batman, which I loved mm. and I enjoyed the fact it was three hours because I could get immersed in it and everything. But yeah, those longer running times are they're starting to become more of a thing when you just want, as you're saying, like a ninety minute kind of sit down bit of popcorn. Because you need a fucking four-course meal if you're going to see some of these movies <laughs> nowadays to last you the whole yeah. time. Um, but you're saying there with the, the, the kind of moment in cinema that gets you, and you mentioned Terminator 2. Mine's is the thumb at the end of Terminator 2. Still gets me. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've never had a Terminator. Um, but, I mean, the son, well, son name's the same, so maybe that could do it. There's nothing, <laughs> nothing as kind of meaningful as yours, but I, I like the bit with the thumb. <laughs> Terminator 2 is one of those, like, that is an absolute... Total rewatchable movie. You know, like yeah. that way you would. There's, you'll obviously, like, if you're in the mood to watch it, you'll just go and stick it on from the start. But if you're flicking the channels and it's on, no matter what point in the film mm-hmm. it's on, you'll stop and just keep watching from that point. Yeah, definitely. And, it, and it's so, like, for a, for a genre that's so, like, dependent on visual effects and all the rest of it, to still stand up 30 years on. Mm-hmm. And I'd, like, I don't think anything's surpassed it since then, like, as an action film. No. No, I think maybe the only thing that came close was Fury Road, but mm, yeah, again, it, I mean that was a lot more CGI heavy. But yeah, in terms of the time that that was made, it's just it's James Cameron. He's a master at that, isn't he? Mm. Just a, a great filmmaker. Um, is there a moment that you remember fondly being like, or quite like a striking memory of something from when you were younger in terms of movies? Uh, there are a couple. Um... I'm trying to think the very earliest thing. This I was too young to to see this in the cinema. I think it was it was out a couple of years before it was born. But like uh, I remember watching ET as a kid, and okay. I was maybe only like three or four years old. And I think the first time I was ever properly terrified by anything I'd seen on the TV was the scene where Elliot and ET see each other for the first time and they're both screaming. And say like Elliot's like eh, and ET's like eh, and just the two of them going back and forward screaming and I, I like my brain couldn't quite compute what was going on at that mm. age and i just thought it was terrifying but the, the other one that, that jumped out at me was like when i was a bit older uh going to see 
Gladiator at... Oh, uh, I mean, I don't know how well you know the south side of Glasgow, but it used to be New End Cinema, um, which was this really striking cinema, which is now flats. And any time I'm on a bus past it, which obviously hadn't been much in the last couple of years, but, mm. you know, we used to go on a bus past it. It was just depressing to see it as flats because it still sort of maintained the same shape of the building. But mm. anyways, that's a different rant. But <laughs> when, I went, when I went to see that, I remember it was quite an empty cinema. I think it maybe it was like me and my pal had gone at a kind of quiet time. But there were, there were two guys like in their own front of us. One of them was pissed and he kept, he kept falling asleep. And every like five, ten minutes, <laughs> he'd just wake up and nudge his pal and go, are they at the Coliseum yet? <laughs> 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 this is a good bit here, wake up. <laughs> and that's a classic as well, Gladiator. Years since I've watched it, actually. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, I remember having it in DVD and just burning through that DVD. Um, Ridley Scott, is that Ridley Scott? It is. And he's making Gladiator 2, actually. Or he's writing it. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to happen. Um, but yeah, there's a, a version of that that's going to be coming out. So what you're saying there about... Um, Moments. One that sticks out for me from when I was younger was I actually was something I wasn't allowed to see, and my mum and dad wouldn't take me to see Jurassic Park when it came out, <laughs> and I was furious. I had the, the if you remember the old no sticker books, but like collector cards of dinosaurs that you would put mm-hmm. in it the day before. I had everything like that, and I'd seen the trailer for it, and they were said it would be too scary. So they came back, and I just remember asking them, "So is Triceratops in it? So uh, Stegosaurus in it? Is that?" And then just going through the whole list. And now it's one of my favourite movies all time. Yeah. So, and again, another master, Steven Spielberg. Um, I was obsessed with like obsessed with dinosaurs at the time yeah. when that came out, and uh, I remember seeing that and just it was it was incredible. But I think I think I had like talking about like the merchandise. I've, I've got this vague recollection of having a lunchbox, like a Jurassic Park lunchbox or right. something at the time. I'm thinking like. If I, just thinking back on that, like if I could go back in time, I would probably bully myself for that. But <laughs> you can probably keep it now, and if you kept uh, it, it would probably be worth something. That's I, true. I had a T Rex that a bit of meat came off the rib cage <laughs> and they showed ribs under it. I don't know why. I mean, I don't think that happened in the movie, but see, when we, we went to uh, New York okay. a few years ago, mm-hmm. and we went to the the Natural History Museum, and I remember like. I was like, I just need to see the dinosaurs, just need to see the dinosaurs. And we, I saw this dinosaur, and it was like kind of, it's all right, it was, I can't remember what it was, but it was mm-hmm. kind of sort of more, it was a smaller one, and then went through into the next room, and it was something completely different. I was, I was actually gutted for about 10 minutes, thinking that dinosaur thing's so underwhelming. <laughs> and then we went into the next room, and it was this big fucking massive T-Rex. Oh, and really? I was like, right, holiday made. I mean, yeah. I got... Got engaged on the holiday, so I won't say that the T Rex was the was the highlight of it, but it was in maybe in the top three. <laughs> Do you work that into your speech at the wedding? Just, I mean, you should have seen it. It was fucking massive. It was great. <laughs> just the whole talk about just talking about the T Rex in New York. Brilliant. Yeah, I had the same obsession with dinosaurs. My daughter's actually got that obsession now as yeah. well, so I'm quite happy. Um, eventually, when she's old enough to sit through something that isn't a cartoon. She'll be getting Jurassic Park <laughs> turning red again. Fucking hell. <laughs> um, so moving on to your director, um, I just asked you basically to pick a director that didn't necessarily need to be your favourite director, but one mm-hmm. of your favourites and three of your favourites from them. Um, you've chose Rob Reiner, who is 
as we'll come on to talk about, it's made plenty of classics and many, many more from apart from what we're going to discuss tonight. Um, mm. What's your kind of relationship with his movies in general? Is it has he always been a favourite of yours? Is it something you came to a bit later? Or? But is I've always liked these films and loved a couple of them, you know, for years and years and years. But I never really thought of myself as like if someone asked who's your, like your favourite directors, it's never a name that would jump into my head. Like I, yeah. you know, I tend to be like a bit of a kind of film bro and be like a Tantino, Scorsese, whatever. And like those guys came into my head for this and like the Coen Brothers and Kubrick and people like that. Um, but I was trying to think of someone for this and I was like, Rob Reiner is a guy who's done at least three classic films. Mm-hmm. That I mean, he's done a lot more than three classic films, but there's at least three that I could happily sit and talk about yeah. on this. And they're all kind of from the three that I've chosen. They're all from different genres. Two of them are sort of close, but they're mm-hmm. all kind of different films, very different films. And they, yeah, I, I, I just realised it's like, Here's a guy that sort of demonstrated he can be equally good in all these different genres and mm-hmm. with plenty to talk about. Yeah, good stuff. So the first one we'll talk about is a favourite of mine as well. Um, and it is a Stephen King adaptation, one of the best. It's Misery, starring James Caan and Kathy Bates. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs, and the fibula in the right leg is fractured, too. And as soon as the road's open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon, the writer? Everybody sure likes those misery books. They had it at the store, Paul. They said he checked out last Tuesday. Isn't that a little strange? I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the misery novels. You must be a good man. You could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. I know you've been out. Is this what you're looking for? Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Annie, whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. Annie, for God's sake. Shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake. It's for the best. God, I love you. Um... The two of them, obviously, at the time, Kathy Bates was an unknown, and this was like her breakout that got her the the uh, the Academy Award for Best Actress. Mm-hmm. 
but the two performances James Cairn at the time was already a legend for a movie that is essentially a man sitting in bed with a psychotic host who's <laughs> kind of psychologically torturing him and she doesn't know her own mind the way she wants to kind of approach him as well. The, it just holds you for the whole, I think it's just over an hour and 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, the performances are great in it, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I, I thought, you know, you mentioned James Caan there. I, I thought you know, um, it's really, really interesting casting that because you think of James Caan, you know, the first thing you're going to associate him with is Sonny and the Godfather. Yeah. And like, so you're thinking of like this macho, tough guy. But in this film, like you say, sat in bed for almost the entire film. Um, it's like a kind of submissive role. Mm-hmm. He's on the receiving end for most of it. Yeah, and I could easily see that being the kind of thing, particularly thirty odd years ago, where a lot of big Hollywood guys would have been like, ah, "It's not for me." Yeah. So it's in, like, I thought it was really, really interesting casting having him and Kathy Bates. It like obviously just knocks out the part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's excellent in it. Um, she just. The way she can just kind of, I think the expressions turn on a dime. Totally. From this kind of caring, I'm your number one fan, as she always says. She's bringing him soup, she's feeding him, and then he, I think the first time you see her properly snap is when she mentions that she doesn't like profanity, and she just starts spilling the soup everywhere, and why they've got to speak like that, and yeah, she's superb in it. Um what you're saying about James Cann as well. I thought it was, a, we obviously don't get a lot of detail about the novels that he's writing, mm-hmm. but it seems like it's maybe more like Agatha Christie or Jane Austen style novels that he's writing. It seems like period piece things that he's writing, as you're saying, you know him as this kind of macho guy. Mm-hmm. Um, what his character in this kind of reminded me of is what he goes on to play an elf. <laughs> obviously it's like totally different characters, but he's yeah. barely aged like from this mm-hmm. movie an elf. And he's working, like publishing, obviously he's a publisher, but he's an author. It just feels like a very, it, it, maybe Elf was an odd to that, I don't know. I don't know if, um, yeah, they'd be smart enough to do that. But yeah, what, what you're saying about Kathy Bates as well, like the, you, there's a million hor- horror or thriller films you've seen where you've got the, the sort of antagonist who's delivering threats and all the rest of it, and you've got it's chilling. But Kathy Bates, it's like, you know, you said she turns on a dime when she's doing the sort of upbeat stuff. It's so menacing because mm-hmm. you know what she's capable of, or you're or you're not really sure at first, anyway. But there's yeah. just always this hint uh, when she's talking about you know the the cockadoodie character or whatever. <laughs> right. just, just all this stuff. It's like this kind of rootsy, charming stuff, but you actually think there's something really unsettling under the surface, mm-hmm. uh, and it just feels really, really threatening. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a kind of a, a sense of innocence about her, but mm. innocence with malice behind it. Um, and it's I think it's in her eyes. It's a performance in her eyes where they can be bright and bubbly, and then they just become almost dark and shadowy within mm. no time at all. Um, there's a few moments in this movie that kind of stand out. I think mm. we've spoke about the performances. The main one is what she calls hobbling, oh. <laughs> which I remember it being more graphic than what it actually is in this. You only see one of the ankles getting smashed. That's a, that's enough to <laughs> that is, that, yeah. that's enough to plant the seed. I think. Yeah, yeah. You just hear the second one, but it's <laughs> such a it's such a Stephen King 
thing to do where it's so brutal and in your face kind of thing. What I actually mm-hmm. learned today, I've never read Misery the novel. I'm a big Stephen King fan, but I've never read the novel. Apparently, she actually hacks off one of his feet in the book, but they thought this was more impactful. Um, what did you make of that first? Uh, first time seeing it, but even in rewatches, it's still horrible. Oh uh, well, this is the thing. Like you know what's coming, especially mm. you know having seen it a few times, you know what's coming, but it never gets any easier to watch it. No. And you're just if, if you've gone a while without seeing it, you're watching it going. I hope I imagined that they show you. No, no, they do show you. Uh, <laughs> <and> it, like, <laughs> like you hear like the this kind of guttural roar of anguish. Mm-hmm. From from James Can and yeah, yeah it's uh, it's it's one of those where it's I suppose you could say it's iconic, but mm-hmm. it's not something that you would sit and just watch that on a loop. No, no, it, it it would probably make a list of like top five gruesome moments or something like that. But then you would watch that list once and never go back to it. <laughs> um, what was saying about James Can as well that the way he's just in pain all the way throughout it, and then she just. Adds to his payment that she thinks he's got a chance of getting away. It's yeah. just so harsh on him, man. It's, like, <laughs> oh, it's it's a great movie, but it's quite a dour movie overall. Mm. Um, one of the other things we're also following, like a, a bickering married couple who's the sheriff and the police and mm. like fucking town crier or something. Um, his end is a bit kind of take it took. Well, first time seeing it took me back a wee bit. I actually had a friend that I was talking to about this movie today and he said, is that one of the first times where a police officer turns up and isn't the hero at the end of the movie? You know, you see quite mm. maybe a bit more now and things like Get Out and uh, most recently watched Fresh and there's kind of scenes with friends of police officers coming to save the day and they don't necessarily succeed. But it's quite a, it was quite a thing, especially it's like a sweet old couple and he just gets shotgun through the chest. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned Get Out because when I was thinking about this, I was like, "He's got Jordan Peele's got is it Nope the new one that's coming yeah. out?" And there's, there's some like if if Nope is as good as Get Out and Us, mm. and we were doing this podcast a few months on, I, I would have maybe gone with him because I, I yeah. love Get Out and Us. I yeah. think Us is actually kind of underrated, mm. um, but yeah, uh, it's a good point about the the police officer because. You have like you're you're trained from watching films for dozens and dozens of films where, like you say, law enforcement is a good thing, yeah, and they're the saviors, and you're trained to feel a sort of sense of relief when they arrive. Mm-hmm. And then I like a film where that gets upended, and as soon as as soon as he's out the road, you're like, shit, okay, all bets are off. I don't mm-hmm. actually know how this is going. Yeah, where is this going? Yeah. And it's a it's a brutal finale because it kind of leads into it a bit. They have a a meal together and they have a well, not a meal. Sorry, this is with the point where he, he's finishing the book, so he always has a mm. glass of Dom Perignon, um, which uh, Annie describes it as. <laughs> and he has his cigarette and he kind of sets the book on fire, and they kind of have a a set to. And this is a brutal scene as well. I think it's the first time mm. I've seen someone stick their fingers into someone's eyes. Like the worst the worst version of that I think is twenty eight days later. But oh, like the first time I can remember seeing anything like that, so brutal. And then he just starts clubbing her with a typewriter and like I think it's like a ceramic hippo or something. Yeah. Or like a doorstop. And that again, that's something that King doesn't always nail his endings, but I think he got it right in this one. And Roy Reiner has got it the tension built up through it because obviously mm-hmm. 
I think if James Cann's character is fully healed and it was a fight between him and Annie, there probably wouldn't be much of a contest. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's so damaged and she's got the upper hand and she's got the almost like the higher ground, it's quite a brutal kind of a battle between the two of them at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think like you're watching it back, you're you can really appreciate like the dinner scene and the tension within that. But if the dinner scene where he's basically poison or mm-hmm. that scene, like if that had come off, uh, you know what happens there? She falls over and he calls a taxi. It's not. It's kind of. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of underwhelming. Yeah. Uh, it had to be, I think, a kind of brutal, visceral ending mm-hmm. like that for him to get away. It wasn't going to be a, just a kind of misdirector send her the other way and he goes running out. And he's mm-hmm. still like he's still in a lot of pain at that yeah. point. He's still very badly injured. Yeah. Um, and then we get the wee epilogue where he's he's writing a new story and he's still seeing uh, um, Annie and it's a good just kind of wrap up of him and his storyline and he's obviously moved on from um, the Misery books writing this new novel and he's finally taken serious as a, an artist uh, as an author, sorry but this experience is always kind of going to hang with him and that's the, mm-hmm. the, the note that it gets left on, it gets left I mean, it could get left open for a sequel, but obviously with different characters and things like that. I know they've brought in Annie in the Castle Rock TV series, but it's like a prequel. Um, And it's about her in her younger years, which is hinted at during the movie and that she's killed children or neglected children or something, a children's hospital. Is is there any character in the history of films who's not had their backstory fleshed out in a spin-off? No, it just feels like... I think it's just one of these things. It's like if you have a recognizable bit of like IP, IP. intellectual property, and so you yeah. can just. I, I heard Cruella was good. Actually, I've not seen that. But... Emma Stone's good in it. Um, I think it won the Oscar for best costume design, maybe actually mm. the other night. Um, but I wasn't a fan of it. Again, yeah. it's like it's like any one of these Disney ones. Cause I think we're getting an Ursula one. Um, <clears throat> mental. We're getting Furiosa. Um, yeah. with it's Anya oh, Taylor. In fact, yeah, yeah. Actually, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah Anya Taylor Joy is playing Furiosa. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I, I, I go and see them. But it's similar. Mm. To, like, it's just a bit, a bit dull. Um, a Fur- I mean, a Furiosa is anything like the actual film it's spinning mm. off. You know, I think I don't know how you replicate that, but I think yeah. it'd be interesting. I mean. Yeah, it could be, and I like Anya Taylor Joy. She's been great in a new series of Peaky Blinders, and um, and she was great in last night in Soho. But yeah, I just as mm, I'm not too sure. I'll probably go and see it though, just because it cost me a fiver to go to the cinema over here, so it's quite handy. <laughs> um, so yeah, that is great. So that's a uh, the Rob Reiner movie, Misery. Do you have any other kind of affiliation with King adaptations or Stephen King as an author? Um, well, I mean, there's, there's been a f- the, the adaptations are they tend to be kind of hit and miss. You've got things that really stick out, like it and Carrie, and mm-hmm. um, even the Shawshank Redemption's technically Stephen King adaptation. But the the one big standout for me, and it's probably quite obvious, but The Shining is yeah, of course. And I, 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 I know that Stephen King himself was not a big fan of the adaptation, mm-hmm. and I know that there is like for proper kind of king fanboys i know it's one of these uh you know people have strong feelings about but just taking yeah. setting the book aside i think it's just a really classic film and he used to like used to uh put it on 
around Halloween, I think, yeah, uh, every year with the, the, the GFT in Glasgow, the mm-hmm. Glasgow Film Theatre, and um, I'd make a point of going every time because it's just it's brilliant in the yeah. cinema. One time, still bitter about this. I'm such a petty guy. But there was like <laughs> there was. I just remember one time, uh, the guy in front of me during The Shining, he just kept waiting until the really tense moments to really obnoxiously munch his crisps that oh, he brought into it. And it's like you know, you know the bit um, where he's he's uh, in the the bathroom. Mm-hmm. It's in the fantasy where the 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 party's going on. And he, yeah. the drink gets spilt and he goes to the bathroom. And uh, the guy's at Delbert Grady. Mm-hmm. He's there, the bald guy. And, and he's like, you are the caretaker. You have always been the caretaker. Right. And he's, he's saying that. And this this guy is like, you are the... <laughs> <laughs> and like, I could feel like my wife kind of restraining me at the yeah. time. And like, I'm obviously not going to do it. And I'm the sort of guy that just kind of, instead of doing anything about these such is just like, Tuts passive aggressively <laughs> and then goes home and moans about it, and then yeah. five years later brings it up in a podcast. <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, The Shining for me, I could watch a million times. It's mm. one of my all time favourites. Yeah, yeah, that's a cracker. I've uh, just recently rewatched The Shining and Doctor Sleep, and um, mm. Doctor Sleep does a good way of kind of marrying the book and the film, like the original Shining book with Kubrick's movie. Um, and I remember it's Mike Flanagan directed that he had like the Kubrick estate sitting next to him watching it the first time and Stephen King and all his side and they both loved it apparently so mm. he done a good job of kind of marrying the two of them um, but yeah it, for King things yeah they can be hit or miss I love the, the two recent uh, It mm. adaptations Gerald's Game on Netflix as well is a cracker if you've never seen that, um, I've seen that. that's brilliant it's got Carla Gugino in it Um and the mist, the mist is one of my favourites. Mm. It's a really, really downer of a movie that, but that's brilliant. Um, so moving on to the second film, we have a classic which, up until you had mentioned this to to talk about tonight, I had never seen. So this was a first time watch for me, um, and it's when Harry met Sally. Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him, too. Grape? No, I don't like to eat between meals. I'll roll down the window. Faceless guy rips off your clothes, and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12. Exactly the same. Well, sometimes I vary it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. You tell her about other women. Yeah. Like the other night. I made love to this woman, and it was so incredible. I took her to a place that wasn't human. She actually meowed. You made a woman meow? Sure. I need to talk. What happened? What's the matter? Harry came over last night. I went night over to Sally's last night. Because I was upset that Joe was getting married. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, we were kissing. To make and a then long story short, we, we did, did it. it. They did it. You challenged me. <laughs> I'm difficult. I'm too structured. I'm completely closed off. But in a good way. And I'm going to be 40. <laughs> when? <laughs> Someday. In eight years. 
for men. Charlie Chaplin had babies when he was 73. Yeah, but he was too old to pick them up. Um, what's your just general thoughts on this? I, I love when Harry met Sally. Like I've watched it loads and loads of times, and it's still fresh to me. Um, I'm not a massive rom com guy, but it's mm-hmm. one of these genres. If it's done really well, it's really satisfying. And when Harry met Sally, I think it's so influential that you can watch almost any rom com from the last thirty odd years. And there's some kind of influence, and even if, if you watch something like Friends or Sex in the City and things like yeah. that, the, the sort of smart kind of, sort of zippy dialogue about relationships and all that—it's just—it feels like it influenced the way people talk. Um, and yeah, it's sort of these films. It's just like smart, funny people being smart and funny mm. for an hour and a half. There's no like fancy camera work, no quick edits. It's just brilliantly written, brilliantly performed, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, and also, like, the wrong director could have got in the way of a script like that, could have mm-hmm. tried to be overly fancy with it. But yeah. because I knew who was coming on the podcast, I was watching it last week. <clears throat> and I, I, just being geeky, I was, I was thinking about stuff. Uh, I, I picked up on the fact that there were long stretches with no music. And so mm. time, at one point, it was like 18 minutes with no music. Yeah. When does that ever happen in a film, particularly like a... A rom-com you'd expect like sort of just bursts of pop music and stuff yeah. over it and it was just it was just because it was interesting people chatting and there was the no need really for any music mm-hmm. yeah um it felt a bit kind of similar to like a link later movie like before sunrise mm. type thing where it is basically just based around the characters having different conversations at different periods in the relationship um like so when i first seen it i knew Obviously, we'll come on to the, the kind of iconic moments of it. Mm-hmm. I knew about certain scenes, but I thought it was a more basic kind of back and forth between, um, like a, a couple or a, a couple of friends. Mm-hmm. The fact that there's a few time jumps, I didn't get was happening, and it's almost like a it's kind of bookmarked by a documentary that's getting made around couple married couples. Yeah. Which kind of dotted throughout the movie as well, so that was quite a mm-hmm. kind of pleasant surprise and a good way to kind of break it up. Um, yeah, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, um, I'm not huge fans of them massively and everything else that they've done. Like I've, I don't like you've got mail or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy Crystal, I could, I think, analyze this was the last thing I seen him in, mm-hmm. um, and the two of them for. Meg Ryan playing the kind of meek Sally when they first meet, and Billy Crystal, he plays such a dick. <laughs> like, <laughs> he does take a while to warm to him. Yeah, he is. And I mean, I don't think he necessarily changes personality-wise massively through it. I think mm. he's still got his kind of belief system. And Slightly he, cynical. Yeah, really cynical, yeah. And that was what was good about it. Um, yeah, the script is really punchy and, and really funny. Um, mm. And it's based around just the two of them. We get a, a kind of small appearance from Carrie Fisher, um, and her, who becomes her partner. Uh, mm. The guy that becomes her partner, but uh, yeah, just the two of them having kind of starting out the relationship as having an active dislike for each other, casually bumping into each other, and then becoming friends. And the only issue I did have with it is I thought the ending was a bit 
rom-com generic, but that's, I mean, it could be a, a, a product of its time where now it's generic, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I've seen I, it so I, many times. Yeah, I don't think the ending's the strongest part, but I think you can allow it that, like, after after everything that's come before it, I think it was still kind of, it's a satisfying ending, but yeah, yeah I don't think it's necessarily as, like, kind of, innovative or as smart as some of the other I mean the dialogue's still good in the ending but I of course I. the way it wraps it up is a bit like you've seen this kind of thing before but again I don't know how many films before 1990 had that sort of ending I don't, yeah. maybe there were plenty but certainly now every rom-com has this kind of just wrap things up neatly in a bow type thing um, but yeah I, I, I love it in speaking about the cast, I think they're both perfectly cast in it. I think the only slight black mark I would have is it's watching it back again. It's really hard to take Billy Crystal seriously at the start, playing a guy in his early twenties. Oh like, god, it's, it's so <laughs> unconvincing. But it's like yeah. I was watching it thinking this would have looked different in the era of like the Irishman, you know, where you could do that <laughs> visual de-aging. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's brilliant. He's really he like that sort of fast, punchy dialogue. He's so good at delivering it. And yeah. Meg Ryan is like we talked about uh, Aptow earlier. And like I like those Aptow films. Mm-hmm. I really like some of them, and they're really funny. But I think one thing about some of them is that maybe the the female parts are kind of underwritten. They're just there to be a sort of foil for the guys who are yeah. the main characters. Emma Stone is brilliant and uh, super bad and stuff. But like. She, sometimes you're thinking the women are just there because there needs to be a woman there kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas Meg Ryan is like, like she's not underwritten at all. She's no. got her own personality. And I think you can tell you can tell who Billy Crystal is right away in that car journey, and you can tell who Meg Ryan is right away when she's ordering in the cafe, mm-hmm. and it's like the fussiest order you've ever yeah. heard. Um, so yeah, they're, like, they're totally fleshed out and uh, really well played. And even like the smaller parts, like the uh, you mentioned Carrie Fisher and. The guy, uh, Bruno Kirby, who goes on I to be her husband. Yeah. They're really funny in it as well. Carrie Fisher has the line, what is it? What's the what's the line she says uh, about the pal? It's like tall, um, tall, skinny, big tits, your basic nightmare. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, tall, I, tall, is it tall, skinny, beautiful with big tits? Something like I, your I, basic nightmare. Basically, well, she's getting ready to get married. Yeah. I, um and they're their fight over the, the table. Yeah, and they're out your apartment, and then you just see him walking out with this giant <laughs> it's like, wheel. He's like, don't say anything. <laughs> it just looks so sheepish. Yeah, like, there's only going to be one winner in that fight. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it was excellent. I said it was a first time watch for me, and I was pleasantly surprised by it because I've always always known about the movie, but I've mm-hmm. always kind of went mm, rom com. I'm not too sure if I bother with it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just quick witted, smart script. Um, really well paced as well. I never felt like it was boring at any point, yeah. even though it is, as you're saying, just two people talking. The kind of big scene in this is the one that everyone knows. I don't think um, the fake orgasm scene in the diner. <laughs> the I'll have what she's having line at the yeah. end of it. And this is the one point where you really see Meg Ryan, Sally, almost let out any kind of full-on... What's the word? Um, not emotion, because she is emotional in the movie, but kind of um, exhibitionist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And she sells it brilliantly from chopping again from that type of character mm-hmm. into this full-on orgasm and over a salad woman. It was the, the, the funny thing about that, also I mentioned 
uh, been in New York a few years ago. And that same holiday, we went to Katz's Deli. All right. And uh, we, you go and it's massive Katz's Deli. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was rammed when we were there. And you go up, you order your food, you take it to your table. And we're ordering the food, and I was just sort of keeping an eye out because it's clearly you can it's clearly signposted the table, and I was keeping my eye out, and uh, all of a sudden I just saw the guy in that table looking a bit shifty, like he might be getting ready to go, and I just said to my wife, "It's like you you handled the food," <laughs> and I just sort of loitered around the table. He got up, and I was like straight in it, so <laughs> like I can say that I had I had sat at the table, and it says something like the sign I think says something like. Uh, this was Harry and Sally's table. Hope you have what she's having, or something, right, cool. something like that. Yeah, uh, but yeah, and the food was really good as well. Aye, but he made a fortune off of that. Oh, <laughs> Just to, like totally. never have to. Well, I say never have to work a day, but obviously they still do. Aye, um, so plenty of photos taken around about that table then. Oh, definitely. Aye, um, cool. But it's, I mean, it's such a good scene in like mm. just another way. I think in which another a, a different director might have not got the best out of that scene is. He just lets he lets it play without a lot of kind of quick editing and stuff around it. Mm. There's no there's no music to tell you what to think at the time. It's just letting her performance speak for itself. And the only kind of cuts you see are to these deadpan looks on the faces of the other diners, like Aye. like slack jawed looking at this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's she plays it brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Completely sells it. Yeah, what I didn't realize as well was that how long the actual scene is mm. like, I was sitting and I was going fucking hell like yeah. I mean I've never uh, maybe says more myself I've never heard a woman make a noise like that but <laughs> um, the, the length of time it went on for as well is is something and it gets awkward for yourself we live in a flat and I was really conscious of like I don't want to have to like go around to the neighbours and go. I was watching when Harry met Sally. It's not what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it does. It goes on. It's, it's like excruciating how long it goes on for. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, the uh, and what you're saying about music as well. I think if that was made maybe about the American Pie era or mm. maybe even Judd Apatow, you'd have had like a car going boom. <laughs> you know, that, that, I can't remember the name <laughs> totally. of that song. There's that one song that's played any time there's like oh, a car wash. Yeah. I, I, oh, yeah. <laughs> probably have that playing in the background if it was made nowadays. But yeah, great film. Absolutely loved it and I'm pleasantly surprised. Um, you're saying you're not a massive rom com guy generally. Is there mm. any ones that you do have a kind of soft spot for that you've seen? Uh, well, I mean, I'm. Not gonna start praising Woody Allen these days, but like, no. <laughs> but but I did. I, I do think Annie Hall is an amazing film, and it's mm-hmm. clearly like as influential as when Harry Met Sally is. You can tell that something like Annie Hall has influenced that. Mm-hmm. Um, Four Weddings and a Funeral, maybe. Like, uh, yeah, really, like Four Weddings and a Funeral. I've not seen it for years and years, but that was a you know good rom com, and I actually saw Notting Hill like bits and pieces of that that was on. I don't know if it was on the telly or if my wife was just watching it on something mm-hmm. recently, but um, it was kind of dipping in and out of that. And it is, some of that is really funny. Aye. Um, but I, I think When Harry Met Sally is the, the gold standard. Yeah, definitely. Um, for me, it's Crazy Stupid Love. Uh, oh, I think it's true. Yeah. I've, and I was um, staunchly anti rom com until I seen that. Uh, <laughs> and it's. I just. The, the, the performance of Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell, everyone in it, Emma Stone, um, 
the yeah, they're all brilliant, and that kind of maybe softened me a wee bit more to it. Um, Gosling's Gosling's too good looking to be that good an actor as well. It's like, <laughs> yeah. just there has to be something wrong with the guy. Like yeah. he's he's really funny as well. He's got good comic timing. Hmm. As long as I know like army hammer style text then i think he's safe for oh, a few God, years yeah. at least when he goes up and slaps someone on stage at the oscars when he gets his best actor one oh. <laughs> um, yeah uh crazy stupid love zone I, I definitely do go back to but i'm I, I, i'm probably still a bit not against them but i wouldn't really look them out but those these two have definitely softened me to it a wee bit more yeah like I, I, it's not a genre like i said it's not a genre where I, i'm like can't wait to see the next big rom-com or whatever because mm. like 90 I, I mean i guess it's probably true of a lot of genres as well but like 95 percent of them are shite mm-hmm. and i'm not just saying that as a guy that they're not necessarily directed at i'm just saying a lot of them are like really just basically let's cast two famous people and hope that there's chemistry yeah and that and hope that the fact that their names on are on the poster is enough to get people into the cinema it's like something like uh, when Harry met Sally, there's so much more thoughts gone into it, and there's mm-hmm. two great performances, really good chemistry, I think, between yeah. the actors. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't actively seek out a lot of rom-coms. Yeah, yeah. And if you do ever really want to watch loads of them, Netflix bring out about six every Christmas. Well, that's, that just... that's what I mean. Like, <laughs> the, the, there's so many of them, and it, uh, they are just really, really generic. The ones mm-hmm. on Netflix, like Aye. I tend to find, like a lot of the Netflix originals. I mean, some of the Netflix original TV things have been great, and obviously mm. they're like behind things like Beth Call Saul and things like that. But like yeah. when with the films, a lot of them they just kind of look identical. They, they they just look like they've all been filmed by the same person. And you've got guys mm. like uh, Ryan Reynolds who are on contracts to just keep making variations on the same film yeah. for them over yeah. and over. It definitely feels there's an era of movies that would come out and it could either be remakes or original movies and it was like shiny 12a movies like you had the total recall remake and the robocop mm. remake and there was the violence was dulled down but the kind of polished look of the movie was kind of dialed up and i hated them mm. and i'd never go and see them i'd actively avoid them and netflix yeah. have gone down that route of kind of right here's a generic superhero movie here's a generic fast and the furious style movie here's um uh, uh, the new Ryan Reynolds one I've not even bothered with but yeah they seem to be getting into a habit of that and then cancelling interesting stuff hmm. it's probably a finance thing or a, a bankability thing but I don't know I, I mean they never really fully release their numbers or anything so you never know exactly what you're getting with them um, in terms of results I think with yeah. I think with Netflix stuff you're talking about cancelling interesting things I don't know exactly how their business model works but it feels like one of these things it's like shows that might have gone on to be amazing aren't really given much time to breathe like if the first yeah. season first season doesn't draw in a lot of viewers then that's it as opposed mm. to let's hopefully get some word of mouth for the second season yeah yeah there's one that's just been cancelled it's called archive 81 um mm-hmm. which is a really interesting sci-fi horror and i've not actually watched all watched the first three episodes but it's a podcast as well mm-hmm. and it's a podcast series about uh, someone who's watching videotapes from the past and archiving them, essentially. And they made it in a Netflix series. Great reviews. Uh, they thought they were getting a second series and Netflix just said, nah, nah, I'm not bothering with that anymore. Here's another fucking generic Ryan Reynolds shit show. <laughs> but yeah, just suck it up and deal with Ryan Reynolds as much as you can. And I quite like him, but... Well, do you know so much? 
you were talking earlier at the start of this about the Scottish Cup facts thing on the BBC. Mm. The guy, one of the guys who was working as a cameraman on it, the director of photography, the last thing that he'd been filming before this was, you know, Ryan Reynolds and thingy out of It's Always Sunny or on or oh, Robbie McElhaney, is it? McElhaney, yeah. Um, they've taken over Wrexham Football Club. <laughs> um, so that he was filming a documentary on that. So he was, the last thing before my thing was Ryan Reynolds. And I was like, <laughs> um, as I said to him, I was like, nice to meet you. Also, so sorry. Like, <laughs> like, this is definitely going to be underwhelming compared to that. <laughs> well, that'll be, is that, I'm assuming that'll be a Netflix documentary then. I'm guessing. Uh, so I, I've seen wee bits and pieces of that. It's just surreal, strange. So the last movie we're going to talk about is, like all of these ones, actually, they're all classics, but this one is instantly quotable, just instantly recognisable. One of the all-time greats, and it's This Is Spinal Tap from 1984. Very delicate. It's a, it's a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. What do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. This is the loudest rock and roll, rock and roll, most explosive band in heavy metal history. This is Spinal Tap. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever. The funniest movie ever made about rock and roll. He choked on vomit. Well, I can't prove whose vomit it was. The monumental classic. There was a Stone Age monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. The makeup of your audience seems to be young boys. Oh, it's a sexual thing, really. We've got, you know, armadillos in our trousers. I mean, it's really quite frightening. No, I was just pointing at it. Well, don't point. Sure, I'd feel much worse if I weren't under such heavy sedation. The cult phenomenon. The numbers all go to 11. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. This is Spinal Tap. I think it's one of those films where even before you've seen it, you feel like you've seen it because everyone quotes it so much. There's so many lines in that film that are just instantly recognisable, you know, like this one goes up to 11 and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> like, you've heard, if, if you've got to, you know, if you've got to, like, your 20s and haven't seen that film, you've heard people quote it mm-hmm. at you, or in front of you. And that I've been in, I've been in bands, I'm always, you know, I'm always around people in bands. And so, no matter whether you're someone that's, headline Glastonbury or just played a few local shows there's something in Spinal Tap that if you're in music you can relate to and, okay. um it's yeah I, I I love it it's like like I said it's endlessly quotable um and it's so it's played so well uh it's so deadpan it's brilliant mm-hmm. yeah it's this time watching it I think I've actually laughed more than I ever have at it, just because it's been so long <laughs> since I watched it. Like, um, the standout scene for me where I was buckled over was is the scene where they're playing on stage and they're all in like these cocoons. 
<laughs> but Harry Shearer gets stuck and the whole song's playing like different guys trying to get him out of this cocoon. And I was just absolutely pissing myself laughing. It's just his expressions as well as he's trying to just break out of this thing. And then breaks out, the song finishes and he tries to get back in and he gets his arm caught. I, just, I was going full on. So absolutely good. pissing myself. There's, there's a lot of good visual moments like that. Like obviously mm. the, the Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's wanting it to be 18 foot, but he's, foot, he's uh, written inches on the drawing. And like you, you said it was to be 18 inches, and it's just this tiny little stone here. Yeah. And they get the wee guys out to dance around it. <laughs> you couldn't get you couldn't do that, you do that anymore. Oh, it's, 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 so, it's so funny. Um, I just I love that whole Stonehenge bit. There's even the kind of the lyrics for the song, and mm. uh, it's, it's, no one knows who they were or what they were doing, the little people of Stonehenge. <laughs> oh, it's just so, and even they, I think they've toured before as well with the actual band, haven't they? Mm. Like when that was, and they done like a, I've seen a thing in Rob Reiner's IMDB and it's like Spinal Tap, the last show or something like that. I don't know if that's like another another full documentary or. I, I'm not I'm not sure, but they, they, I know <clears throat> it wasn't one of the years I was there, but they, they played at Glastonbury one year Did with they? the, that Jarvis Cocker came on stage, but they were, um, <laughs> it was like everyone on stage was playing the bass. I don't think there were any other instruments, but I think they were all just like, playing the bass. This one, so. um, but, yeah, but no, that's, that's another thing as well. It's like, it would be less funny if the, if they couldn't play their instruments well. Hmm. I think it works better because they're all actually capable musicians. Yeah. Definitely. And so, like, they are pl- completely deadpan and believe that they are a very good band. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, you're talking about their, their kind of musical ability. I saw Harry Shearer at the Fringe one time. Right. Um, he'd done a show with his wife. It was around about the Bush era. Mm-hmm. So it was a political show, but it was called This Is So Not About The Simpsons. Right. Um, and he came <laughs> on and introduced the show using all the voices. Oh. And he was saying, like, in the voice, I think he does Mr Burns, this mm-hmm. is not about Simpsons. Don't ask me about it. But then done that right at the start to get it all out of the way. Right. And then him and his wife played like political songs with him in the bass and think she was on piano and vocals. Mm-hmm. And it was great. I mean, just seeing Harry Shearer within kind of touching distance was quite something else. Have but, you uh, seen the the film A Mighty Wind? I've not. No. no. Um, it's not as funny as Spinal Tap, but mm-hmm. it's an enjoyable film. And it's the same, you know, it's all the same people tend to be in these Christopher Guest films, yeah. Um, Christopher Guest, uh, Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, Eugene Levy, the other people, Captain yeah. O'Hara. Um, but it's about a folk gig. It's like right. all these folk bands, and they're all reuniting. I think maybe someone dies, and it's a tribute gig. Okay. It's all these folk bands that were big from the sixties that reunite in uh, modern day, maybe like twenty years ago. And it, some some of it's pretty funny, but like the music's all done really well as well and again mm-hmm. it's it's you can tell that they're all very good musicians yeah and that definitely adds something to it yeah i think um it kind of captures those 80s style videos as well the metal videos with the over the top gunning the, mm. the like sticking the tongue out like in the guitar just everything about the mannerisms when they're on stage is just perfect you've got it down to a t um I think for me, I loved the Harry Shearer's character in it. Um, I think him 
when he's getting like he's gets the cocoon bit we spoke about, he's at the airport and he's getting the <laughs> cucumber shoved down his, his pants. What I never understood about that scene was why does he bother covering it in tinfoil? Because <laughs> he'd have got away with it if he didn't have it covered in tinfoil. Honestly, when I watched it again the other day, it did cross my mind because it's, it's like you still achieve the same size. It's, it's like the tinfoil for freshness. Is he like planning to eat it later or something? Does cucumber or courgette sweat? Maybe it just doesn't want the, the kind of sweaty, sweaty vegetable against these boys anyway. Um, it's. It's a movie that's kind of, again, it doesn't lose any of its impact watching it nowadays, I think. And you can definitely tell influences um, that kind of throughout other mockumentaries and rockumentaries that have been made over the years. Do you think there's been anything that has really came close to it in terms of that? Have you seen um, Popstar Never Stop Never Stopping? literally about to mention Popstar. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's as good as Spinal Tap, but no. there's definitely the influence and I think some of Popstar is really like laugh out loud funny. Like I'm a big fan yeah. of Lonely Island mm-hmm. uh, and Andy Samberg and I think the I think there are moments like this the songs again in Popstar there are some that are really, really believable as like uh, the same with a lot of the Lonely Island stuff. It's like I feel like they must have proper producers in with them making those songs because they don't yeah. Yeah, if you took the the daft lyrics off the top of them and the, the daft videos, you would that's plausible as something you might hear on the radio, you know. Yeah. Um so yeah, they're def- definitely an influence on pop star and then just in terms of like mockumentaries, obviously Ricky Gervais was a big fan of it and I think to the extent he interviewed Christopher Guest um not long after the office for the TV special, um, but there was. Uh, did you ever? I've only seen a couple of episodes of this, but have you ever seen the documentary now? Um, no, 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 it's no. it's. A, I think it's like three or four scenes of it, and I've like say I've only seen a couple of episodes. I'm not sure what it's on, but mm-hmm. um, Bill Hader and Fred Armisen, mm-hmm. and it's each each episode is like a spoof of a kind of well known documentary. Cool. But they just sort of, you know, they play it again reasonably straight, but there's Aye. there's jokes throughout it. And there's a really, there's a good one where they uh, sort of take off the Talking Heads one, Stop Making Sense. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, stuff like that is clearly influenced by Spinal Tap, but I don't think anything is going to touch it. Yeah. Just in terms of just quotable lines and that kind of thing. Yeah. You see, um, I mean, I think it's either, I would say we had an influence over that, but then active musicians making movies as well. We just had the, the Foo Fighters one out recently. They made mm. a, a horror movie. And it's quite cool to see, like, you can imagine them watching Spinal Tap and being musicians. And obviously it's a different style of movie making, the Foo Fighters one. But just getting hints and tips from that and how to make the movie and make themselves come across. Because essentially the Foo Fighters play themselves and Dave Grohl's a showman and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um and it's not particularly good, but you can tell that it's it's been made with that type of influence in mind. Yeah. I, I, I think with Spinal Tap, I think if you come away from Spinal Tap and get the jokes and then, as a band, keep repeating that kind of behaviour, then you weren't really paying attention. Like, it yeah. is, like you, you can't, with a straight face do some of the things that Spinal Tap do after you've seen that film. But there must be, like I said earlier, there's, 
stuff in there like getting lost on your way to the stage that must have happened <laughs> so many bands just i love that they keep turning the corner and going hello please oh no we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah that was a great one as well and the um the bit where you say well, yeah we're going to go in a new direction and he's sitting yeah. at the piano and playing this oh, like ballad what's that my, one called oh, that's <laughs> like, my, <laughs> like my love pump <laughs> oh so that's one of my absolute favorite scenes is, and again like i think all three of them nail the english accents but i think christopher yeah. guest in particular Everything he says, even if it's not naturally a funny line on the page, mm-hmm. it's funny coming out of his mouth. And it's like, just, yeah, that seems so, like, it's like this kind of pretty thing he's playing in the piano. It's like, ah, this one's called Lick My Love Pump. <laughs> <laughs> he's just saying, because he's playing it so straight and he believes that that's just great. <laughs> And he's got this uh, self-importance about himself. And he just, uh, oh, it's an absolute, yeah. I'm definitely going to rewatch it more, more often now that I've had that rewatch. Um mm-hmm. So that kind of brings us to the end of the discussing the three movies. Um, you said we've had a wee chat about Rob Reiner as well. I just had a quick look at his IMDb, not realising he'd done Stand By Me, another Stephen mm-hmm. King adaptation. He's got um, A Few Good Men, which we kind of discussed before as well. He's got some back catalogue. Um, definitely yeah. would check out a lot more of them. And as you said, like it's sometimes these type of films not go under the radar, but they... You almost always go to like a Cameron or a Spielberg, but Reiner's mm-hmm. stuff is, yeah, it's got a lot of, it's a strong back catalogue he's got. Yeah, you wouldn't like, you wouldn't consider him like a superstar director. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't necessarily, like, if I heard there was a new Rob Reiner film coming out, I don't think he makes that many films anyway, but like, if yeah. you heard there was a new one coming out, it's not like, well, you've got to see the new film by X director. Like, yeah. with, with him, it wouldn't necessarily cross your mind, but it was just again when I was thinking about the directors, I was like, these are three films that I really, really like. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think maybe it does sort of go under the radar, mm-hmm. maybe just for modern audiences. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in fact, looking at that as well, we made um, another one that I've not seen that I should have seen um, The Princess Bride, which mm-hmm. is apparently a classic, but then everyone goes yeah. on about it, but I've, I've never seen it. I know lines from it. But... Yeah, well, I think the thing is, most of these films we're talking about, they're all 80s or early 90s, Spinal mm-hmm. Tap's early 80s, Princess Pride's 80s, um, Misery, was it like 1990? And yeah. When Harry Met Sally's around the same kind of time, isn't yeah. it? So I think he is a kind of big 80s, 90s guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're looking at 1984 with Spinal Tap, and then he made it in 85, The Sure Thing, which I've not seen. And then it was Stand By Me in 86, Princess Bride in 87, When Harry Met Sally in 89, Misery in 90, and then A Few Good Men in 92. That's, what a that's, run that is, by yeah, the way. That's from 84 to 92, eight years, and he's made all of those movies. Mm-hmm. That's some going, uh, definitely. Yeah, I'll definitely check out uh, a few more of his, I think, after this. Um, so the last part of the show is basically get you to play us out. Um, picking either a, a favourite song of yours that you feel is appropriate or a, from a movie or if it's part of a score um, mm. or just anything in particular really that, that takes your fancy. Um, and then I've got a, an exclusive at the end of the show actually before <laughs> we go on to play that out. Um, yeah, the, the, this, this was difficult. There were a lot of things from scores that I was thinking of and mentioned E.T. earlier. I think like the end mm. credits from E.T. Mm-hmm. Like, I really like the score for Old Boy and, uh, you know, uh, Under the Skin, the Scarlett Hansen one. Scarlett Hansen, the film in that's, Glasgow. Yeah, mm. that's that's really unsettling, and I, and I really like some of the music from that. But the in the end, I've gone for Lust for Life, oh. uh, Maggie Pop. And I was just thinking, like, what is a film, what is a song in a film 
that just you you see it and you're like, oh, I'm totally on board with this yeah. film. And like that is there's there can't be many films that have an intro that is so instantly gripping as them on mm-hmm. Prince's Street pounding the pavement with the that sort of Motown rhythm of Lust for Life and him doing the Choose Life monologue over it. You're like, yeah. I, I was too young to see it in the cinema, but like you know, it, the, the first time I saw it on video or DVD or whatever. It just grabs you instantly, and you're like, "Yeah, I'm in." So Iggy Pop, Lust for Life, perfect tune to play us out on. Um, as I said, we actually have an exclusive, and Tam Cowan hasn't been able to get it out yet, as of yet. Um, <laughs> you've not slipped up on any radio or TV, but tonight you're going to reveal Adam, mm-hmm. who actually is your team. Well, I thought you know after all this time, I thought you've been nice. Why don't I just? give this to you as an exclusive. Mm-hmm. So, since you asked nicely, the team I support is... Well, 